0: Welcome to the Leading Voices with ULI, a podcast of the Urban Land Institute. In this podcast series, we interview city builders who use innovative approaches to create healthier, more economically vibrant communities with character and a high quality of life. These leaders provide inspiration to those of us looking to play a role in building better cities.
1: Hi, this is Matt Slepin, host of Leading Voices with ULI, welcoming you to the latest installment of our podcast series. Today's conversation is with Chip Conley, hotelier and per his LinkedIn profile, strategic thought leader and change agent. A quick rundown. Chip founded the Joie de Vivre boutique hotel chain at age 26, which he then ran for 24 years before selling the company. From his work at Joie de Vivre, he wrote the best-selling business book, Peak, or how great companies get their mojo from Maslow. After selling Joie de Vivre and doing motivational speaking on the concepts from Peak, he took on a part-time role at age 52 as chief strategy officer at Airbnb. Part-time became well more than full-time. We get to discuss the phenomenal growth of Airbnb and chips bringing both hospitality thinking and senior leadership and emotional intelligence To what was then a relatively small company of young tech geeks he's now back to part-time at airbnb back to buying hotels and working on his next book one about the modern elder great and inspiring conversation i know that you will enjoy the discussion as much as i did if you've been a listener to the podcast series you know that in my day job i'm the founder of Terra search partners a real estate-focused search firm where I get to interview leaders in the real estate business as clients and candidates. On the podcast, I get to do the same, but for the purpose of sharing unique stories of leadership and accomplishments in the different nooks and crannies of the real estate world with both ULI members and other listeners. If you enjoyed today's podcast, I hope that you will subscribe to the series, which you can do on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. I invite you to review the series on the iTunes store, and we welcome your comments, feedback and discussion on ULI's Facebook or Twitter or via email at uli.org or to me directly at Matt at TerraSearchPartners.com. First of all, Chip, I'm thrilled to have you for the podcast when we started the podcast, which is kind of about the intersection between real estate and leadership. You were the first person that came to mind Mm, to do this, and now you're about the 15th or 16th (laughs) person.
0: I'm either hard, either you had to get your courage up to ask me, or I'm really hard (laughs) to track down.
1: Hard to track down, and you should be, so it's great. But a few headlines for me and why I wanted you on here. So I'll just give a quick summary. You're a Stanford grad and an MBA. At age 26, you founded one of the first boutique hotel brands. In the country, which you ran for 24 years, mm-hmm. maybe you bought and started the hotel at the advice of Bill Graham, yeah. one of everyone's heroes. Exactly. You made it through the dot-com bust. You wrote a book that we'll talk about a little bit, sure. kind of coming out of that experience. You sold your baby. You were a motivational speaker. And then you went to Airbnb and helped transform them or bring them into the hospitality world, I right. think. That's right. And now you're part-time there and doing other things.
0: Yeah, writing another book. My fifth book. Yes. Your fifth book. Yeah, yeah. So how do, you, how do you hold all these different things, all these places together? <laughs> well, today's a good example. I was up at 3 a.m. working. And I went to bed at 9. So six hours is not bad. But mm-hmm. I, I do wake up early. I am like a farmer or a monk. I say that my writer wakes up before my editor, and I mean that internally, uh-huh. meaning I don't edit myself between about 4.30 and 7.30 in the morning, and so it's a good time to flow in my writing, my writing skills. So I'm curious by nature, so I'm really fascinated by life. Uh-huh. I tend to take things on that are challenges that a lot of people might walk away from because there's two kinds of mindsets you're going to have. It's a fixed mindset or a growth mindset mm-hmm. and they're both fine in a fixed mindset. You tend to focus on your own sandbox because you're proving yourself and you like to just get better and better at that right. thing. If you've got a growth mindset, it's more instead of trying to, to prove yourself, you're trying to improve yourself. And that means you put, you plant yourself in other places. You go to another, another sandbox and you are more open to failing, more open to making mistakes. But it, is, it does actually mean you could you could also look like you're a little bit of a dilettante because mm-hmm. you're sort of like trying a lot of different things. So I'm probably more the latter than the former in terms of someone who likes to try different things and is curious about life. Because of that, it means that I, have, I take things on like with a big appetite. And that means that, yeah, six hours of sleep a night is probably a good night's sleep for me. And for someone else, they need eight. And guess what? I get 14 additional hours per week. It's um, amazing. Different Great. ways to live my life without sleeping. Uh-huh. Were Were you always this way? I've been this way for a long time. Yeah. So you
1: know, I always like to start at the beginning. But talk about growing up and what 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 being you was like growing up and where what went how.
0: I grew up in Long Beach, California, in Southern California. I was a curious white boy. That was my my high school nickname. Curious white boy. Yeah, because I went to Snoop Dogg's high school. So I went, I was very much in the hood in Long Beach, Long Beach Poly High School. Famous, you know, there's no high school in the world or in the US that has more NFL and NBA professional athletes than my high school, but it's also the number one feeder school for the UC system. So it's actually a big 5,000 person high school Mm -hmm. with great academic and athletic programs. I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur, you know, in my teen years, I started doing little like trying little businesses and, Mm -hmm. and then went to Stanford undergrad. They don't have a real estate degree at Stanford. (laughs) being an entrepreneur as a student, I decided to to petition to the school, along with a friend of mine, to teach a class, to be actually appointed to the faculty my senior year, and actually teach a class to fellow students called Introduction to Real Estate. Uh And so I couldn't graduate with a real estate degree from Stanford undergrad, but I did teach a class on it and uh, took the only two classes at the Stanford Business School on real estate Uh that existed. And which is interesting because I was an undergrad petitioning to the business school and they allowed me to, to take those. I also worked for my uncles. I got named Bruce Ashwell, mm-hmm. who was uh, had a company called Ashwell Burke and then Bishop Hawk, uh, real estate brokerage companies. And he, I, w- I spent a year in Silicon Valley when I was 19. I took a year off from college. I had some extra credits. And I worked in the valley as a 19-year-old selling real estate and... And so ultimately, I got accepted straight into Stanford Business School because of all that experience. Right. And at age 21, I went to Stanford Business School. At age 23, I graduated. So we go back for- just that's, a a lot. I,
1: that's a lot. That's so, a lot. But I'm curious. So entrepreneurial, curious in high school, When? When? how did the real estate bug come up? Was it because of your uncle? It
0: was or? a combination of my uncle and my dad. My father
1: was a traditional
0: corporate executive at companies, more traditional companies. But he decided he was going to create his own investment company like around 1980 when I was in the middle of college. Mm-hmm. And my uncle had gotten quite well off as just a really sort of like bootstrapping real estate developer and broker in Silicon Valley mm-hmm. and Sacramento. And so my uncle said, I, you know, I'll take you under my wing and teach you the business and I'll have you work as the what they called the runner for the mm-hmm. two uh, brokers in his whole company and this was 1980 in Silicon Valley. I mean, this is like, there's still lots and lots of orange groves. Right. And so my, what I, what fascinated me about real estate beyond just what I was learning from him but I love the fact that it seemed really creative. I, I liked the creative aspect of it or the potential for creativity. The truth is a lot of what I did wasn't all that creative. And between my first and second year of business school, I worked for Morgan Stanley in the mm-hmm. real estate division, which used to be called Brooks Harvey, right. and then Morgan Stanley Realty. And they loved me. I, I loved them, but I, did, I realized I didn't want to go into corporate real estate. I wanted to do something more entrepreneurial. And mm-hmm. so at age 23, as I was graduating from Stanford Business School, I had a few job offers, but the, I took the job offer that paid me by far the least amount of money, and I went to work for a guy named Bill Poland, Bay West Development here in San Francisco. And I, which is the ironic part of that is that Bill was an owner of, he was a partner in the gift center, which is where Airbnb's headquarters is now at 888 Brandon, 8th and Brannan Street, also. San Francisco. But a year, about six months or a year into working for Bill, I realized that I didn't find being a real estate developer with him to be as creative as I wanted it to be. I was learning a lot from him. I liked working with him, but I wanted to do something more creative. And that was when I started to do a little bit of exploration of like, okay, well. I like the creativity of real estate. What's a form of real estate that's even more creative? Hotels started to come up in my mind. And it was about that time in 1986 that I did a deep dive looking into boutique hotels. So Bill Kempton and Ian Schrager had started their boutique hotel companies three or four years earlier. And I liked what they were doing. I liked that boutique hotels allowed you to take the creativity of hotels, but taking it three steps further, very design-oriented And uh, so I decided to start a hotel company called Joie de which is a very impractical name Uh for a company. It's hard to spell, hard to pronounce, and most people don't know what it means in the U.S., but it means joy of life. But there are are very few companies in the world whose mission statement is also the name of the company. So I liked that. And then at my first purchase at age 26, when I started the company, was this broken-down motel in the Tenderloin that used to be called the Caravan Lodge. Right. It was a pay by the hour motel, very popular at lunchtime. <laughs> even though there was my no grandfather notice. had one of those. He did. I did. Where?
1: Where? You know, it was in Philadelphia, and my father, I think, as a youth, like turned the sheets or something yeah. like that. Well, this
0: guy Art Norcus, was the owner, and he <laughs> he said to me, he needed, "I mean, he knew I was dealing with this youngster. Run. I was like 26 years old, and I would raised a million dollars to buy this 40 year lease and a, a hotel that was in bankruptcy." And I said I said to him, so what's your occupancy rate? And he said, 122%. And I said, well, that's impossible. Hmm. He says, well, it depends on what's in the denominator. <laughs> Most people put, <laughs> put daily occupancy. I, I look at it nightly or hourly. And he says, uh, you know, I turn, turn the rooms at least once a day with an hourly rate. And I was like, explain that to me. And he said, wow, Sonny, if you're Got if, that pretty if at quick. 26, you don't <laughs> figure that out, and I'm not going to explain anything more. And that place became known as the Phoenix, Uh rising from its own ashes. And that was the first of 52 hotels. And how did
1: Bill Graham come into that story?
0: So Bill Graham came into the story because I was working for Bill Poland, Bay West. Bill Poland loved the idea of somehow Bay West being the joint venture partner on the Shirlin Amphitheater uh-huh. in Mountain View that Bill Graham was building. But the truth is, yeah, so he said, Chip, you go out and figure out how to make a, make a deal with Bill Graham. Well, that was crazy. I mean, I'm 24 25 years old at that point. Oh, right. Bill Graham didn't need us. He, he wanted us for our money. We didn't have a lot of money. So I was like, what are we going to do? So I, Bill's, Bill Poland's point of view was, well, we can be the construction manager to all that. And it's like, Bill Graham didn't want that. He just wanted us for the money. And It allowed me to get to know Bill Graham. And Bill Mm -hmm. Graham said, listen, you know what you really should focus on? You you and your company, you should focus on creating some cool hotels in San Francisco because I bring all these bands to town and all the hotels are really boring. And so that's what I said, okay. And I went to Bob Holland. I said, I'd like to start a hotel division. And Bill said, listen, we already do really crazy real estate. We own the Showplace Square, which is sort of an interesting design center. We're not going to do anything more crazy than what we're already doing. And ultimately I said no him, you know, I'm going to go start my own hotel company. And he laughed at me and I did. That's what I did. And so that's, and Bill Graham said to me, you know, your first hotel should be focused on bands on the road. And so that's the first hotel, the Phoenix, is mm-hmm. a broken down motel, 1950s motel in the Tenderloin, a bad neighborhood in town. But it became very, very popular with bands on the, on the rise or on the fall. <laughs> yeah, so we had the Ohio Four players. Seasons in the Middle. Yeah. And well, yeah, these are like you know the Ohio Players and Devo on the fall and, and Nirvana and Pearl Jam on the rise. And
1: how much did you have – I think about this a lot, but how much did you have – you said Joie de Vie is the same name as its mission. When you started, how articulated it was your mission and how deeply did you understand that? One other question, how close, how much creativity and then how much kind of customer delight? Because that's different than creativity.
0: Well, there's, they can be, you can use creativity and innovation to create customer delight. And I think... I had obviously, if I, I'm calling the companies you want on the front. I and I had some sense that what we wanted to create was joy for people, and mm-hmm. first for employees, and then for customers. I loved Herb Kelleher, who was co-founder and CEO of Southwest Airlines, and he used to say, you know, the customer comes second. And mm-hmm. his whole premise was, if you're in the service industry, you got to first focus on your employees, So if you have happy employees, they'll have you'll yeah. have happy customers. And I believed that down to my toes. So the whole mission that was creating Joy of Life for our employees first and our customers second. And that was pretty clear. What was interesting over time is how, as we grew, and we grew from 1987 till 2001 when the dot-com bust happened we grew from one hotel to 21 hotels in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And at, at one point, we had 17 hotels in San Francisco alone at that point. And that was a great time. D- during the dot-com boom, everything was going great. But during that time, we had to really build the culture, develop mm-hmm. our whole point of view about how we operated. And we were definitely a, you know, I called it karmic capitalism, what goes around comes around. It's now co- often called conscious capitalism by John Mackey, who started to help all those markets. And it was then in 2001 when the dot-com bust – happened, and 9-11 happened, and we went into a serious recession, and the San Francisco Bay Area experienced the largest percentage revenue drop in the history of American hotels other than by natural disaster between 2001 and 2005, we were very vulnerable. And that's Mm -hmm. when I really got more clear about our operating strategy. Right. And that's ultimately why... And we ended up tripling in size during a very difficult time. And that's when I ended up writing this book, Peak, How Great Companies Get Their Mojo from Maslow which is my third book, but it was the one that more than any book I've written Uh is the one that really defines our approach to business, which is very human centric. Maslow's hierarchy of needs was, you know, we have physiological needs on the base and five levels self-actualization at the top. And we just said, okay, well, if that's the hierarchy of needs for humans, what's the hierarchy of needs for employees and for customers and even for investors? Uh I
1: I read the book on the airplane last night. Oh, wow. Well, I, didn't read every word but I got through most of it we're going to have a corporate training in a month and we're going to use the book because it it blew me away but the question is I wonder about this from leaders all the time is did the book articulate what you already knew or did the articulation take it to the next level kind
0: of talk about the difference I think the articulation it. took it to the next level it was it was absolutely how we were operating so even before the dot com bust and before I started saying, okay, we need to figure out how we're gonna get through this time, we were operating differently than other companies. Mm-hmm. And the name of the company sort of said that. But the that very difficult time forced us to really get clear about what was gonna be our operating strategy. And then the writing of the book after the success of it became my ability to then articulate it externally and internally even better than I had previously. So mm-hmm. I would say it's an evolution process. It's not. Mm-hmm. It wasn't binary. It wasn't like, oh, one day, it's just like, oh, okay, now I know it. I'll know it. It was like an evolutionary process over a, a few years. And, you know, I'm really lucky. It's, the book's been out 10 years. It sold a lot of. It was a bestseller, and it's uh, going to go into paperback this fall, and I'm writing the um, updated edition right now. Because part of the reason I ended up at Airbnb, mm-hmm. which we'll get to in a few minutes, I guess, was because the founders of Airbnb had read Peak, and they really liked it as an operating philosophy. And they were they were a small company at the time. And they approached me and said, How could you apply this here? And I initially I thought it was going to be a consulting assignment, but it turned out a seven, to be a 70 hour a week commitment. And back to a point you made a few minutes ago about conscious capitalism, I think
1: it has to be who you are. It doesn't change. But again, when you started this, how how conscious were you? What was the goal towards that was the goal towards a balance of doing business, doing good.
0: Yeah, Do you, I, you understand know, I, it then? You know, I live in San Francisco. And that's so true. there's a certain amount of just this is woven into the fabric of the culture here. Mm-hmm. I think for me on a personal level, I have, you know, clearly based upon anybody who's listened so far, I'm a pretty ambitious type A person. I just yeah. am. And weirdly that's matched by a, I, you know, I've been meditating for 25 years and I, I, you know, learned how to become a massage therapist at the Esalen Institute and I'm on the board there, personal growth center. So there's a part of me that's actually as, as high strung as I could be. I I sort of mellow that out with this, uh, you know, slightly spiritual approach to my life and and to business. And it worked, it's worked for me all the way back to, you know, when I was selling dirt in Silicon Valley at age 19 so it wasn't. So I don't think for me it was that much of a leap to sort of say I'm going to be more conscious in business. So you were, you bring it to the table. It's just yeah, who I bring, what I bring to the table, and 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 that's great. I mean that's part of the value of it is that. I think over time, it's become more standard in business. That that's how people operate. <laughs> but for me, it's been authentic. And so I think for everybody who knows me, it's like, oh, okay, well, that's just, just how Chip is. And whereas for some other people, they're like late comers to actually saying, well, you know, we need right. to do this because we need to actually look good. We need to have corporate social responsibility because we're going to the planning commission to, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> to get our approvals. And they better think that we're a good company. And, you know, so for me, it's like I, I wouldn't want to operate. And be an entrepreneur of a company that I didn't have a lot of pride in. I, I think your reputation is one of the few things in life that's portable. And it actually frankly, gets there. Your your baggage gets there before you arrive. People right. know, know about it. And I mean, you know, the business you're in is so important in terms of executive search and leadership and what a, rep- your, what a person's reputation is. And when you actually realize that your brand, your personal brand of your reputation is one of the most valuable assets you have in business it actually shifts how you operate and i've sort of been in that mindset my whole life partly because i think I have a father who taught me that
1: it's interesting we look at this all the time not everyone is better than average in terms of reputation and there are Assholes are successful, too. That's true. And we see it a lot. Yeah. Well, now, I'd rather. I don't, be the,
0: get, I don't even get political. But, you know, i no. <laughs> okay. No, you're right. You're right. There's a, there, and Steve Jobs. I mean, Steve Jobs was a, you know, when he came back in his second round at Apple, he was actually a little more emotionally involved. But in his first round at Apple, he was just an awful person to work for and work with. Right. So there's a lot of examples of people who don't have emotional intelligence uh-huh. or don't operate consciously who are very successful. I mean, that's in many ways, that's the history of how we think of business. And business people successful business people i think the nice thing is that we, we moved into an era where i think you see a more of a mixture of people who are you know howard schultz isn't you know i've known him pretty well for a long time pretty good pretty well and he's he's ambitious like me but he's also incredibly focused on like doing the right thing
1: and reputation first and reputation foremost in that for, company. yeah
0: absolutely and so i think that you know, I think part of it is a function of how transactional a business is. Real estate can be very transactional. And the more something is transactional, the more risk there is for win-lose situations. And if you have win-lose situations, generally, you have the re- a greater risk for re- a reputational risk because when someone loses, they want to blame someone else. Uh-huh. And so I do think that the real estate industry generally has had some risk as, as being an industry like investment banking and a few others that are so transactional that if you operate from a win-lose perspective, you are going to create some enemies along the way. And that means you will have some potential risk of reputational risk. I mean, I've you know i operated in that business, so I, I don't think that it, you, that has to be the case. But I just think the odds of your reputation, having some people who say bad things about you are greater in a, in a transactional industry. People are nervous
1: to, for their counterparty to be someone you may not close with or you may not close mm-hmm. again with, and you want to do business on a repeat That basis. is so, so true. Don't doubt about it. That's so, true. so coming out of the dot-com bust, you guys succeeded instead of hunkered down. Right. And so talk a little bit about that. and
0: Yeah, I mean, we um... – you know, it, the, the model for peak is if you took the five level Maslow pyramid and turned it into a three level pyramid, it would be, to, it sort of defines life. You have uh-huh. survival at the base of the pyramid, you have success in the middle and you have transformation at the top. Most of us in life, when we think of business, think of just that middle, you know, like you want to get beyond survival to get to success. And in many ways, that's how, you know, that's how we define, you know, a person who has made it in, in, in their career. The transformation at the top is where it gets really interesting. It means, you know, in a a personal level, it it means that you're more willing to do things that have a legacy and Mm -hmm. maybe, you know, that are where the intangibles are important. So we went through that difficult time with that model of survival, succeed, transform, That's the transformation pyramid applied to employees, customers, and investors. And our whole premise was, let's make sure we get the base of the pyramid right. If we get that right, then we can move up the pyramid. And our basic belief was that great companies and great leaders operate from the top of the pyramid, from the peak of the pyramid, meaning that they find a way to get to transformation for employees, customers, and investors. If you do that well, you create greater loyalty and greater differentiation, and in general, it means you can actually price yourself at a premium for the product or service you offer, because people actually are flocking to you. And you know, so that's that's in a, in an abstract way a definition of what we did. And yeah, I mean that we 52 boutique hotels later, you know, the company. succeeded based upon that through two very difficult downturns. We had the dot-com bust and then we had the Great Recession. And it was in the Great Recession that I I came to the conclusion after almost two dozen years being CEO that I was burnt out and I liked writing books and the thing that used to be my calling, which was the founder and CEO, Joie Aviv, had become more of a job and now I wanted to spend more time writing and speaking. And... So ultimately I, I sold the management company and the brand, but I kept the ownership of a lot of the hotels. So I used to 16 hotels I now own eight and yeah, and so I be the company I built, right. those was just I sold it to John Pritzker, uh, whose father started Hyatt Of course.
1: And what was it like selling your baby? And have you watched your baby? How does it? and has it disappeared into that company? How does that work?
0: It's hard. You know, I mean, it's hard. There's two sides where it's hard. There's hard when you're actually creating 52 boutique hotels, each one with its own personality. So it's for those who don't know Juana because we're, we're a very West Coast-centric company. It moved beyond West Coast now, but when I was operating, it was just in California. Every hotel has its own name. So mm-hmm. in San Francisco, the Hotel Vitali on the Embarcadero, a hotel built from the ground up, great location is one of our hotels. People might be familiar with that one, for example. So... To have 52 different hotels, each with its own personality, it's like having 52 children. and you're putting a
1: lot of, You're birthing 52 uh, times. Oh, yeah,
0: exactly. And everyone's different. Each one's like a, you know, a unique one. And so when we would lose one because 60% of our hotels we didn't own. So if it's the end of a management contract, someone's selling the hotel, they're selling the hotel to an operator who's going to operate it themselves. We as the management company lose our job. So that, I had to learn that for a long time. But the idea of then selling the company because the, the, the
1: company the people. The, the
0: 3,500 people in the company were the people who really were the culture. The culture was a compilation of all these hotels and the restaurants and the hotels and then spas as well. But, you know, that was hard. It was very hard because I was sort of the papa and the mama of the company and the culture of the company was defined by me. But I knew in 2008, 2009, when we were in the depth of the recession, I just knew that I didn't have the stomach for I anymore. I was, you know, I was really ready to move to whatever was next for me. Again, my curiosity factor. It's also,
1: a Zen thing because the you're saying the company, you were the mama and the papa, but the company, you were the company. The company was you. Well, that's and You probably had to move one with yourself. To well,
0: be- I, I, that's an interesting proposition. Which is, when people would ask me for many years, people would ask me how are you doing, and I'd say. The company's doing fine. Right. <laughs> or in the early days, the first hotel, the Phoenix. How are you doing? The Phoenix is fine. And so I was the process of me molting like a snake that actually has a molten skin. Right. The, the process of actually, in essence, molting my identity was actually something I was doing before the world even knew. I could feel it. Mm-hmm. I could feel it. And I and it, and what happened was the Great Recession really precipitated me having to make that change. Because I just, I, 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 the company deserved having a CEO who absolutely wanted, with 100% certainty, that they wanted to be sitting in that chair, and I didn't have that certainty anymore. So it was hard, and it was hard, you know, since then, seven years ago, almost to sort of see changes that sometimes I agree with, sometimes I don't agree with. But you know, you have to recognize that if you've made the decision to that you don't have 100% to put into that, and you've sold the business as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I did sell over time, so it was over like you know between 2010 and about 2013, I, I sold a little bit of at t- a time. And mm-hmm. again, I'm just selling the management company and the brand. You know, you 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 know you can give feedback to them. You can give you know critique if you want, but you're not you know you, you can't be the backseat driver. Yours anymore. Yeah, it's not yours. So you just have to move on. And I think that uh, that's why the Airbnb opportunity was a was a fascinating one because in some ways the first couple of years after i sold i actually felt fine because i was executive chair for about a year and a half and actively involved and then i really started pulling back a lot we had a merger with uh, thompson hotels called the merged company commune uh, hotels and then I, that's when i felt really quite separate from the organization and i needed to move on and there was a part of me that didn't know what was going to happen next and and that's why you know when the three founders of airbnb approached me and asked, hey, uh, we want to democratize hospitality. I was like, well, that sounds pretty interesting, but who the hell is Airbnb? I didn't, I, mean, <laughs> I was one of those classic establishment players in an industry that was about to get disrupted that didn't even know the the company that was going to disrupt us. I mean, and I, they were here in my own town. I had heard of Airbnb. I thought it was a subsidiary of couchsurfing. I didn't realize it was a different thing. I didn't realize they were growing as fast as they were. So I gave a speech there at their headquarters much smaller headquarters and the company now has funny enough it has almost exactly as many employees now as Gi you did when I sold it which is around 3500 employees but when I started four years ago it had 350 employees so it's it's ten times larger today our revenues are <laughs> 20 times larger I, like I mean like just like yeah, I mean, it's in, in four years we've come a long way.
1: It's just hard to think, although it, it's obviously one is a service intensive business and the other is a, a brain intensive business. I don't know the right word.
0: But well, we're a pla- Yeah, we're a, te- a we're a technology platform that you know the thing that was very clear when they when they asked me to join was there were three like there were three stu- legs of the stool, and they had gotten two of the legs right big time. Two of the three. Very young. The two, I mean, the founders were 24 and 26 right. when they started. They're now, you know, about 33, 34, 35. When they started, it was two of them were designers, so web designers and just smart at just design. They went to R- Rhode Island School of Design, and the other one was a Harvard engineer. So they had design and technology down pat. But there was not a person in the company that had a hospitality or real estate background. So the hospitality and travel business, which is what the business really was, uh-huh. didn't have anybody representing them. And so that was part of, initially I said, okay, I'll, I'll help you out as a consultant 15 hours a week and, and just helping help you to become a hospitality company. And that turned into pretty quickly head of strategy, head of learning and development, head of business development, head of business travel. And, and you know, I was at 70 hours a week, right? And that was shocking, but in retrospect, I'm I'm glad that I sort of went all in. It did mean I was sleeping less. Mm-hmm. But it meant I was traveling the world a lot and developing, you know, relationships with our host and guest community all over the world because we're in 34,000 cities. Right. As well as having to go into my the hotel brethren out of the world and real estate developers and who are sort of leery and Have them scared cope with us and, and say, okay, let's, let's talk about how we can be a little more collaborative <laughs> here. And that's still an, an effort. So let's go back to a couple of
1: things. And you talk about the three legs of the stool. I'm thinking of a fourth leg to the stool, which is how does the company operate, feel, how does it yeah. work? Yeah. So there's 350 people. There's 320-something-year-olds who are technology yeah. people running this company. Did they hire you, and, and they read your book, Yep. So did they hire you for an inoculation of hospitality knowledge, or did they hire you to be kind of the the adult in the room, or the the culture person in the room, or
0: both? Yeah. I, I mean, I I have never said adult in the room because I have a hard time with that phrase. Uh-huh. A lot of people say it all the time to me. Think of I, Eric
1: Schmidt because it's a similar. Yeah, thing.
0: It, it is with Eric Schmidt at Google. Um, it was both in the sense that they hired me absolutely quite explicitly to be the hospitality guru and the person who could understand how we can become a hospitality company. But they also hired me. Brian hired me specifically to be his mentor. Uh-huh. I, I was, I was going to be his mentor and help develop leadership amongst the senior leadership team. Uh-huh. So I became head of strategy quickly because in many ways, they I mean, these guys had just sort of found a a business they created a business that just like grew up and overnight and they didn't have any background in that and so in many ways i was helping them with the entrepreneurial and leadership and strategy skills that that someone who is a little older could offer
1: and i'm gotta i have to go back to the 15 hours a week because i still can't get my head around that but that's in retrospect because maybe at the time this was a lark or a Listen, company that may not happen in let, your let, mind. So 15 me, hours me,
0: does the trick. The night before I was starting, it was eight hours a week. And Brian came over to my house for dinner. And he didn't get there until like 10 o'clock at night. And, uh-huh. I, and I'm an early to bed guy. And so I, and it's my first day the next day. And we're having dinner at 10 o'clock. And he's saying, I need you 15 hours a week. And I'm like, I just want to do eight. And it was like, okay, no, we, we agreed on 15. And actually, I agreed not to work for no money. So this is all true. I wait, agreed to no salary, don't pay me salary, just give me six months of stock options and not a lot, you know. And they vest over six months, and they never do that. But they gave me that and said, okay, six months. So in essence, I saw, and he said, I said, don't let's not go public with this. Let's not tell anybody I'm doing this. I mean, people will know, but let's not let's not do, make this a media story. Let's make sure that's working first. So this is April 2013, and we actually didn't get public about this in 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 a major way till September of 2013. So for four and a half months, my my friends knew, and a lot of hoteliers in San Francisco knew, but we kept it pretty quiet. And because it was originally going to be fifteen hours a week, but by the third week, it was like fifteen hours a day. And it was very clear at that point that what they needed, and they got it. I mean, (laughs) Brian Brian's a very smart guy. I really have a lot. I I could not have done this if I didn't feel like I had a lot of respect Mm -hmm. for him and Mm -hmm. the feeling like, wow, this is a great opportunity to. Not just to teach someone to become maybe the CEO of his generation, but also to learn from him and the company i've never right. been i learning comes both ways i 'm fifty two years old no tech experience a real estate and hospitality person all of a sudden in the belly of the beast of one of the two fastest growing tech companies in the world and I was lucky i mean I, you know i I could walk to work it was twelve blocks from my home it was in the our headquarters moved to, mm-hmm. to where we are now just two months after I was there. And that was Bill Polin's building that Bay West right. development owned that building as a part owner in that building when I was many years earlier. So what a fascinating opportunity. And then to apply my principles of peak in a company that was a global company was a beautiful opportunity. But
1: We've been reading a lot of, of the contrast between we of, of read a lot about Airbnb. Yeah. Of course we're reading about Uber right. and you have to have a, a willing victim to want to be mentored and to have someone help them run their company. Yeah. So we just look at Brian Chesky at the other end of that yeah. spectrum.
0: So Brian and Tra- Travis is the CEO of, of Uber and, and you know, the, the, because they're both sharing economy companies that have been, disruptive to an industry right. and they're both based in San Francisco. They're both tech companies. There've been a lot of comparisons for sure. And the values of the companies are right. quite stunning. But Travis made a different decision. He may, he, he decided to sort of go alone. And whereas I, I can't say anything more about him. I don't want to be discouraging sure. in any way, but what I will say is that Brian has this growth mindset. He's so curious. He's always asking, you know, he, he reaches out to people like who used to run the CIA because, we're, we're a trust and safety business. So, how do we actually? CIA figures out like who's not, who's, who are the people out there who are, you ought to be worried about? Well, right. we better do that too. Because, you know, if you're letting someone into someone else's home, how do you actually figure that out? So, Brian figures out how he can get a hold of the former, you know, head of the CIA. So, he, he's just amazing in terms of how he would, he would go out and get these contacts. But I think from a cultural perspective, it was clear that he knew that there's a lot he could learn from me. And that he wanted someone to be by his side on this rocket ship. And the thing that I had to do after having run my own company for 24 years, I hadn't answered to anybody since I was 25 right. years old. And all of a sudden I realized like, I'm going to be the mentor, but also he's going to be my boss. And on the org chart, and I haven't gotten a performance review from anybody for a long time and this performance review I'll get from Brian, he's 21 years younger than me. Mm -hmm. What's that going to feel like? And I was twice the age of the average employee in the company as well. And I'd never been in a tech company. So there was just a a lot I had to get used to. And so I realized quickly that I was both the mentor and the intern and my four years there, um, I think it was, I was really benefited by the fact that I figured that out early. Otherwise, and I had to shift my identity. I had to basically say, my God, I'm not the CEO here. I'm now the CEO whisperer. I'm, I'm the person who's helping him succeed. I'm not the person you know, on the, on the front of the stage. You know, I, I arrived here today for this interview, and the San Francisco Chronicle has a front page story on me in the front page of the business section. That is so weird because that did not happened for the last few years. <laughs> I've been sort of on the sidelines just helping the senior leadership team, the founders, and especially Brian. And it allowed me to right size my ego in many ways, so that I could be my legacy here could be not you know the thing that I founded, but the thing somebody else founded, but that I can help that company grow. And you know, as much as we're a disruptor and we're controversial, I think a lot of people have to look at us and say, "Wow, that company has come out of nowhere, and it's impressive what we've been able to accomplish." And relative to Uber, we have been very reputation-focused. Now, in San Francisco, it's been a little bit, you know, in New York and a few other markets, that's been pretty pretty challenging. But generally, globally, the reputation and brand value of Airbnb as a company is is quite high. Mm
1: -hmm. You can't not, I'm trying to think of disrupting cab drivers, and I'm thinking of disrupting, hoteliers or B&Bs? It's or,
0: very it's, different. I mean, the, you know, different. because I think Uber and Lyft, they're, they literally are a, a replacement of the cab industry and, and because it's, it's, it's a tra- and it's very transactional business. Right. And we're not a replacement of the hotel industry. And that was the part that I had to really go. Because there are, you know, I've been on the road a lot the last few weeks and sometimes in Airbnb home and sometimes in most of the time an actual hotel because the shorter length, the length of your stay, the more a hotel makes all the sense in the world. And while we've gone, in, gone into business travel, we have like gosh, three or four hundred thousand corporate accounts now, mm-hmm. generally the corporate accounts they're using us are SMBs, small businesses, um, and the big ones that are using us, the Morgan Stanleys and Google's of the world. It's usually for extended stays, you know, because someone's staying, right. you know, five days or longer, and we're perfect for that. I mean, I think we're frankly the dominant hospitality player in the world for people staying a week to three months now. I mean, mm-hmm. like dominant. It's not there's not a close second in that week to 3 months market. But yes, of course we have people saying, you know, one or two nights too.
1: For us, we do both, both, usually corporate hotels, yeah. but going to Philadelphia in a couple of weeks for a family event, I'll be there for the weekend, I'll be there with my wife, I'll be in a suburb that has no nice hotels. Yeah. I haven't yet hit click with someone. I'm yeah. about to hit click on Airbnb. Yeah, well,
0: good, thank you.
1: Do it, it's, you know, it's great.
0: Well, what I had to teach there, and I won't spend a lot of time on this because this is more focused on real estate than hospitality in the podcast, right. but to actually step into this place that doesn't have a hospitality history and say, oh, well, how do you – Right. I know what it's like to actually help our employees to provide the service that makes us build a great reputation. But how do you do that with hosts who aren't your employees? But I, I'm really proud. I'll just I'll get to the sort of the, the summary of this, which is that you know at this point Airbnb's guest satisfaction scores are substantially higher than the hotel industry, and we use the same metric as the um, the, the largest hotel companies in the world, mm-hmm. uh, which is called Net Promoter Score (NPS). So we're really proud of that. And a lot of it came back down to what I learned in Peak, which is it's all about psychology. What are the incentives for hosts to actually do a great job? And how do you actually use some positive reinforcement, but also occasionally the stick and the stick being like, let's take hosts off the platform. We're we're not good. Thank you. Quality. And yeah, exactly. And we're also a network effects business, which basically means, which is a tech talk for like Facebook is a network effects business. The more everybody goes there, It's like it's like a a farmer's market. Maybe there's three farmers markets in a city on the same day. Well, the one that's really big is where both the buyers and the sellers tend to go, unless it's a really niche branded farmers market over there, because the buyers and sellers, the the gravity of the size of that farmers market allows you more choice and more hosts and more sellers. So a host and guests are the same thing. Uber and Lyft, same thing, that's a that's a network effects business. That's a local network effects business and Airbnb is a global one, which is part of the reason I think that our business model long term is actually maybe even better than Uber's because once you create the global platform, mm-hmm. it's really hard for people to compete with us in that home sharing business.
1: Maybe impossible unless it's a new. I think you're right. Maybe you
0: niche business. In certain areas, like China and India, have a competitor to us, and, and and there are companies like HomeAway, which got bought by Expedia, that in the vacation rental market, they're definitely a competitor. They were here way before we were. But yeah, they they're all we're sort of across all of these as opposed to just vacation in right. one country. And you probably have
1: so, so many surprises, unintended consequences. So when I visited your office a couple of years ago, one of the stories I heard about an unintended consequence is: what do you do during a flood? And maybe it was about big flood in New York. Yeah. And all of a sudden you, you are the responder. You're the only platform that could immediately yeah. get a bunch of couches Right. at the right price, or free, now you're, actually. And, right, so you're in a business you don't know you're in. And our
0: disaster response, I have about that. dozens and dozens of times around the world now. Uh, we engage our hosts in, in those communities where there is a disaster that's happened. And our hosts can opt in to provide either free, and almost all of them do it free, or extremely discounted housing to people who are displaced. And so, I mean, it's happened in, in probably over 20 or 25 countries at this point for a certain kinds of natural disasters. We've actually you know, been involved also in refugee situations as well. It's a little harder because a refugee can be a longer-term stay, and generally our hosts prefer you know, shorter-term stays than you know, three months or six months or a year at a time. So yeah, there's a lot of ways that the platform can actually help out there in the world. It's also helpful in places like you know, Brazil and when they had the World Cup and then Rio. You didn't have to build a bunch of hotels. Now I hate to say this to real estate developers, it's like, oh, you know. yeah, but there's some truth to it. it. Like building hotels for singular events is not a good use of resources for anybody. The it's government like, has yeah. to subsidize them, the environment, nor the developer. I mean, so the idea that we can be an accordion of supply, such right. that when there's a an event that's going to dramatically spike demand, uh, we can be there. Now the risk in that, as a hotelier, and I still own hotels. Is it does actually take away some of the compression, which means some of the pricing power that the hotels have goes goes away or it doesn't go away. It actually just diminishes a little bit. And it just means that, you know, instead of charging three times as much during that convention in town, right. you charge two times as much as a hotel. Which is, you know, they're mad at us for that. And, you know, but from the consumer's perspective, this is it's great. Because it actually creates some additional choice.
1: Yeah. So you take away the peak requirement, it's like building every kitchen in America for Thanksgiving. Right, right, like yeah. not every house can do that. So that would be a level of overcapacity. You know, one of the first podcasts we had was with Steve Wilson from the Twenty One C Hotel Chain. Oh yeah, heard of yeah,
0: no, I love it in Louisville, and oh my got multiple God. locations. Yes. Yeah. In secondary markets, yeah. They, I mean, their models. I don't know how they. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> the amount of art and the kind of value of the art that they have isn't necessarily something that everybody could do. Right. I think it's great because you know what they've shown is that the boutique hotel trend, which started back when I get got started a couple of years before me, at least in the U.S., it now has moved to the place where it's in Bentonville, Arkansas, and Louisville, right. and Cincinnati, and in a lot of secondary markets that would never have had a boutique hotel 20 years ago.
1: Well, it's in niches, and it could be at the very high end.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: And it could be everywhere. Yeah. And so that, that works and talk about at Airbnb, you have, this is something I almost got involved with you with, but when you're disrupting or have relationships with formal real hotels on your platform, I don't know if that happens, but I know apartment owners have started that. So talk about kind of traditional owners of real estate and. Yeah collaboration
0: i mean there's lots of ways to for a, a, an apartment owner or a real estate developer to think of us and generally it's it, there's a great gandhi quote from the 1930s with when india was trying to get independence from britain he said first they ignore you then they ridicule you then they fight you and then you win yeah. <laughs> and that was a quote that i gave at Airbnb when i started to all of the employees and i said you know that's going to be our relationship with a lot of people out there they're going to they're going to ignore us at first, and then they're going to ridicule us, then they're going to fight us, and then at some point, we're going to figure out a collaboration. We're sort of at that later stage now with apartment, many of the apartment owners, people like Sam Zell and others have said, how can we play with you as opposed to just fight you because it doesn't look like you're going away. So the kinds of things we've done and with Jaja Jackson, who is our head of our multifamily housing partnerships, we have looked at How do we create a dashboard for an apartment building of some size that allows the owner to know which tenants are actually putting their their units up on Airbnb and do they have an agreement with the landlord to be able to do that? And then how do you do a revenue share so that the landlord actually gets a portion of what the tenant gets if they're actually home sharing? Now, what we don't want to do, and I'll just be really blunt about this, and it gets us in trouble if we do do it. Or if somebody takes use the platform for this is if someone's going to take a 12 unit building and then vacate all the apartments and then just put the whole thing on Airbnb, in, in urban markets that have affordable housing crises, we just we have, we have we just don't allow it. And if we find out about that, we actually take those listings down off and don't let them on our site. They can put them on someone else's site, but not on ours. And yet, in some markets, like you know, let's say you're in a a depressed area where there's a 20% vacancy rate for apartments, you know, it, yes, maybe it works there or in a vacation rental area where there's a lot of condos and people's second homes right. and people are only there two or three weeks a year. Of course, people are, you know, you've got to be able to rent these spaces and a lot of owners don't want to do long-term rentals for their second home mm-hmm. because, you know, what if they decide they want to go last minute and, you know, then they've got a month-to-month person staying stay there and how do they get that person out? So Right. So there's some natural synergies between landlords and developers. Developers are looking at Airbnb and saying, "Gosh, I'm um, well, like Sam Zell's built an equity residential across the street from Airbnb headquarters. He's got a building. These he's building a huge building, eight fifty five Brandon, with lots of three bedroom units. Now nobody wanted to do three bedroom units in the past, and he may have had to do that to get approvals with San Francisco because that's part of the. The mythology in San Francisco is if you build three bedroom units, you get more families to stay in town, which doesn't happen a whole lot. But what it now does is says, okay, you rent a unit. I'm going to use another unit as an office. And then my th- the third unit, I'm going to actually rent on Airbnb. I mean, when I say unit, I mean be- bedroom. Understood. And so that third bedroom is like, I can just have, you know, maybe 15 days a month of somebody staying uh, in that that extra bedroom, which is. A little bit further from my master bedroom, and I have an agreement with my landlord that the landlord makes X percent of whatever I'm making, and it's, you know it, it tends to vary between ten and fifteen percent. Mm-hmm. So that the fact that actually some buildings are even being designed with this uh, sharing mind, economy. It's just it's you know and it's the future, and you know buildings are going to be designed such they don't have as many parking spaces in the future in in certain urban markets. For the same reasons, and maybe they'll actually design since so that they're micro units that people know. Gosh, I'm a, a McKinsey executive on the road, eight, 28 years old, and I, I just go on the road a lot, and so right. I just have a, I have a micro unit that I just rent when I'm not there. So I, you know, the, there's a lot to this trend, and there's also a big trend toward what are called the digital nomad nomads, the people who are actually staying a week to three months, who sort of like. Don't have to, they don't they don't own a house, they don't own a car, they're 30 years old, they're a software designer, mm-hmm. and an entrepreneur, and they live in Bali or Baja for three months, and then they go live in Boston or Austin for three months. And they are just looking for and they have a we work space in some of these places, right? They have a co-working space. And that is, I don't want to say that's the whole future of like how people are gonna work. It's not. But you know, Could it go from you know, 0.25% of the population today to 10% of the population 10 to 15 years from now? Absolutely. So you left Airbnb or you're part-time? So I, I finally out? moved from 70 hours a week to 20, <laughs> to, that 20 to 30 hours. hours a month. Actually, 20 or 30 hours a month. I moved from head of global hospitality strategy to the strategic advisor for hospitality and leadership. And that just means I'm really there to, I know the organization. Well, I took a a lift from over there to here to talk to you about this. So I'm there a lot still definitely more than 20 to 30 hours a month, but it's transitioning down. It's trending down in terms of the number of hours I need to put in. Partly because I just know what's going on. I can, you know, I'm a pretty quick read, you know, a 20 minute conversation about an issue the company's facing can lead to, you know, a, 20 minute conversation and then a 20 minute decision. And so I can be helpful in that way.
1: And is this so you can do the next thing? Is this the same thing that happened at the yeah, end of?
0: Yeah. I'm curious about something else. I'm, I'm writing a book called Modern Elder. The whole premise of this book is if we're going to live 10 years longer than our parents, but power in a digital society is moving 10 years younger, Uh-huh. do the math. 10 years longer, well, I'm going to be 10 years older, but power is moving the opposite direction of me. I have 20 years of additional irrelevancy and obsolescence. And so, I what I'm curious about is, you know, as of this year's college graduation, we will have five generations in the workplace at the same time. We've never had anything close to that. Three five.
1: before, right? Yeah.
0: So we well, you actually, if there are three times as many people in their 70s. So baby boomers go to to about age 71, 71, 72. But there are three times as many. People in their 70s in the workplace today compared to 25 years ago. So there's a lot of people in their 70s. That's the Silent Generation or the Greatest Generation, whatever you want to call them. And those, you know, my father would be that. You know, 1937, 38. My parents were born. So there are people who are in their 70s. So that's one generation. Then there's the the, the Boomers. Then there's Gen X. Then there's Millennials. And then there's Gen Z, which is the people who are just graduating from college this year. So now you got five different generations, all with different perspectives. How do you Help create a wisdom transfer between generations, and that's what I learned at Airbnb. You know, I was supposed to come in and be the wise elder, but quickly I realized, well, I'm not. I'm mentor half time. I'm intern half time. Right. Like Robert De Niro and Anne Hathaway in that, film that. A couple uh-huh. years ago called The Intern. That's sort of my my situation was very different than Robert De Niro and Anne Hathaway. He was almost like like secretary intern, like very subservient. My role is sort of like actually no, I was mentor. But also, but, but reporting to him, but what it became very clear is a, I, there was a symbiotic nature of, of sometimes I'm a mentor, sometimes I'm an intern. And I want to write a book about this because I think that the idea that people over 50 feel a little bit irrelevant in a world that's getting more and more digitally focused, and those who are most adept at digital tend to be younger. This creates a, a, both a sociological concern, but a personal growth one as well for people who are, Mm -hmm. I'm 56, so people my age, anybody, you know, I'd say 45 and older. And frankly, in Silicon Valley, it's 40 and older. You know, there's a sense that at age 40, if you're in the technological or technical part of a tech company, you're over the hill at age 40. So Mm -hmm. I'm I'm fascinated by this question. And so I want to write
1: a book on it. And then I don't know what comes next. Well, let me ask you a question about that. And and then we'll have to wrap up. But I I know for me, I I struggle with this. And I talk to my peer group all the time. I'm 60. Just turned that. I'm at the best time of my life and the best Mm -hmm. time of my career and the best time in terms of wisdom. I I believe that to be true. But how do you not be irrelevant? How do, do you not go to pasture? Some people want. Some people want to go golf at sixty-five or yeah. even seventy, whatever the age is. Yeah. But a lot of people love what they do, yeah. and, and, it, so and it's, not that. That, it's not that you're, you become one with your job and identify with your job. That's a, that's a yeah. different problem. Yeah. But to find the meaning, I guess it's about meaning. It how something. do you find that meaning at that those ages for the vast population, not just. For you who are an outlier or I'm an outlier, whatever it is.
0: I mean, I think being curious and constantly learning. Someone said, Chip, you're the most catalytically curious person in this company. And to say that to someone who's in their mid-50s in a company full of young people, the more I started to look at it, I realized, you know what? Why am I so catalytically curious? I guess it's because I'm confident that I can actually sound like an idiot because Mm -hmm. I have a beginner's mind. I'm willing to actually realize that, I don't have any experience in the tech company. So when you guys talk about shipping features, I don't even know what that means. So teach me. So they would teach me some digital intelligence. And then implicitly, I would teach them some emotional intelligence. I would take someone aside after seeing them run a meeting and say, you know what? Are you open to some feedback? And it was somebody who I knew well enough. Right. So it wasn't like you know, dad coming in and tapping them on the shoulder. Of course. And doing it. But it was all in private. And I would just say, hey, that meeting – it's clear from what I saw in the meeting, there's a handful of people in that meeting who are, are not in an alliance with you. Now let's talk about how we can have you design an alliance between now and the next meeting, because that meeting didn't go well, because they were coming prepared to fight you. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about what we do to help you. And so that kind of advice, which was coming out of left field, was, mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not that person's boss, it's a different department, but it's, but it's somebody who interdisciplinary-wise we actually do a lot of work with. I did that all day long. That became a fundamental part of my job, and it was not the job description. So the idea of a modern elder who can actually be in an organization and be sort of a wise advisor and a, and someone there's, – there's some studies that have shown that intergenerational teams do better. Why do they do better? Well, diversity usually means better things for organizations because, you know, you understand your customer better. But also it means we think differently. And someone, you know, the, the, those on an intergenerational team who are the young ones are the fast ones. And they're the ones who are willing to actually take usually the bigger risks. Whereas it's the older people who actually are able to see how do you create the collaborative spirit so that a team can work well together. Sometimes those people who are asking the bigger questions and are able to see the blind spots. I guess what, I thought, what I'm i finding, what is interesting to me, is to look at this and say, wow, we're going to be a better world if we can figure out how wisdom doesn't just flow downhill from old people to young people. And the truth is, we now are in an era where young people don't really necessarily want to hear from the old people in a lot of companies because they're sort of seen as if they have an expiration date on their forehead because you don't understand digital and everything today is about digital, or you don't right. understand millennials. And then mm-hmm. that's you know that's the big thing in the marketing world. It's like if you don't understand millennials, then you know you can't be marketing. Well, okay, that's fine, but you know the reality is the you know baby boomers frankly still are the dominant disposable income generation in the United States. So, For Airbnb, you're talking to a
1: lot of your users.
0: We do both. We hope you enjoyed this installment of the Leading Voices with ULI podcast, hosted by the Urban Land Institute. To learn more about ULI's Leadership Network or to join ULI as a member, please visit ULI.org.